Father God, again, we just thank you. We, we come with such grateful and thankful hearts. I pray, God, that every one of us are in an attitude of thankfulness and gratefulness to you and for what you have done this week. Father, I pray that our hearts have been strangely warmed, that we've come into a contact with you and a connection with you that we haven't before, that we've rested in you, we've learned to rely on you more, that we're ready to leave here restored in some way, and that we can go back into whatever normal is for each of us, um, being a closer disciple to you so that we can be better disciple makers. God, I pray that we would have our eyes on our top 10 list and that you would continue to bring them to mind, that you would continue to challenge us, that we need to um, help them and that we can serve them by uh, bringing them closer to you. Father, I pray that in our pursuit of making disciples that we would not neglect that we are also in the process of continuing to be made your disciple. And so, Lord, I pray that we would follow you well, that we would walk in step and with you, never in front of you, but uh, following behind or you coming alongside. Father, I pray that we would serve you well, that we are your hands and your feet, that where Jesus was skin on in, in so many practical ways to other people. God, I pray that we would be obedient to your word, that we would follow it, that we would love it, that we would be challenged by it and grow through it, that it's not just a set of to-dos and, and do-nots, and it's not just a set of, um, of history, but God, it is you revealed, your revealed word and your character and, and your plan and your ways of how we live. Lord, we desperately need to be in your word, reading it and studying it and memorizing it. And so, God, I pray that we would obediently approach your word every day. And, God, I pray that we would choose to walk in all your ways, that we would choose to be on the straight path, that we would not trust in our own understanding, but, God, that we would acknowledge you in all our ways and in throughout all our days. And, God, God, that as we are made into a disciple, that's when we're able to make disciples as well. And we're going to trust you through this next uh, hour or so as we learn more, as we glean more. Would you continue to pour into Blake? We're thankful that you've already done that. He's come prepared. But now, God, he stands here ready to be used by you, and we're grateful for it. Make us good listeners. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. God, I ask that the words of all of our mouths and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Come on in. Good morning, class. Good morning. What a privilege it's been to be with you in these days. You know, I know that's, uh, I'm supposed to say that, and then I'm supposed to enumerate all the ways, but I really mean it. And I don't know how to separate uh, that from the expected rhetoric. It really has been good to be with you. When I go to local churches with seminars, I usually find uh, a group of folks who are interested in learning and want to engage and want to participate. But I also always find a group of folks who just came because the church is having an event and they do church stuff. And so it's really unusual for me to have an audience that everybody wants to engage and everybody wants to be here and everybody wants to participate. So I have appreciated that so much. Someone said in the first session, as I recall, back in here is where the comment came from, I don't know the individual, uh, that uh, if we're going to be disciple makers, we have to keep learning. And that's true. Uh, that comment challenged my preparation, my late preparation for this morning, uh, because I want to talk with you a little bit about as you go teach. And I was in the process of rethinking that based on that comment. As you go, learn, and then teach. And then I, I was reminded of this truth, and any of you who have ever taught anything uh, from children's programs to Bible school to adult Sunday school, whatever, any of you who have ever taught anything know that the teacher learns the most. Uh, so I have, I have greatly benefited. This is the first time for this series of, of uh, uh, discussions. Uh, I've got a, got a couple of 
local churches scheduled to bring this, and you have helped them because you've helped me. So thank you very, very much for that. Uh, in keeping with uh, what uh, Ellen was sharing earlier, I have uh, a series of cards here, business cards here. Be sure that uh, when you take one, if you're interested, really interested in making a personal kind of contact, that you get either Nancy or me to write uh, our home address and my cell phone number on it because as I indicated the other night, I, or the morning, I'm in transition and I don't, I don't know whether I'll get mail from the university or not. I don't know how that works, frankly. So uh, we would be happy to have your invitations to come to your church, uh, come to our, our home, or, or via my cell phone. So be sure you get that. What we want to do this morning then are three things. Uh, briefly, want to talk with you about uh, this topic as you go, teach. Uh, because I think we are, if we're going to be disciple makers, we're going to be teachers, whether we like it or not. We are not all gifted to teach. I understand that. But Jesus said, go make disciples. And we're going to have to teach in order to accomplish that at some point. Someone uh, raised a question with me the other day. I'm off track already. I'm chasing a rabbit already, but that's okay. Uh, raised a question with me the other day. Uh, the individual said to me, I simply do not, I'm just not comfortable leading people to Jesus. I don't have the skills, the gifts. And I think my answer to that individual, or at least the answer, that I don't know what I said to her, frankly, but as I thought about processed it, here's where I'm at. Uh, uh, three of the four, I, I believe that's right, three of the four lists in New Testament of the gifts of the Spirit include the gift of evangelism, which says to me that like the gift of teaching, there is, for some believers, a supernatural empowerment to evangelize. But the Great Commission was given to all believers. You go make disciples. So I think it's important for us to keep this two-fold distinction that we've started with and that my quote from Dennis Kinlaw helped to support yesterday. It's a two-fold process. Step one is leading people to Jesus. There's a special gift that some people have that enables them to do that. It doesn't excuse the rest of us. There's also a gift of giving, but we all should be giving. There's also a gift of service, but we all should be serving. But some people just have a supernatural empowerment to lead people to Jesus and to seek them out. And, and, and so I'm glad for them. I don't have that. I'm glad for them. But then the second part, of that discipleship making is where we help people understand what they don't know, their own insufficiencies. We better learn how to do that because that's that's command to all of us. Does that make sense? So that's why I am where I am this morning. Let me begin with an illustration that I know those of you who were in my class last year have heard as a part of a commercial, but the illustration is so indicative of where we are in the culture today that I need to tell the story again, if I may. Some time ago, my son, who's senior pastor <coughs> at the Church of Christ Christian Union in Circleville, Ohio, a little community of uh, less than 20,000 folks, I would guess, a small town, kind of a, kind of a uh, bedroom community for Columbus, uh, suburbs uh, just south of Columbus, Ohio. And Jay's senior pastor there at First Church, Church of Christ Christian Union, which is in a very changing neighborhood, economically depressed neighborhood, neighborhood with a lot of drugs, uh, just, just a problem area. Such, in fact, that when Jay came to be the senior pastor there, some of the leadership was looking for a place to move the church. And Jay said, if you're going to move the church, I'm not the right guy because I believe God planted us here to, to, to influence this neighborhood. And so uh, he wasn't overwhelmingly popular as he began his ministry, and now he's been reinforced several times. But all that to say this, the way, one of the ways they're engaging their neighborhood is with a Friday night program they call Second Chance. And in Second Chance, uh, they offer a dinner. They feed the community uh, two Friday nights a month. And they go door to door and say, hey, we're having dinner 
tomorrow. They have an advantage in that their fellowship hall is separate from their church building. And so they invite people to the fellowship hall, and a lot of these are folks who wouldn't get caught dead in a church building. And so these folks come to, ch to church, to, to the fellowship hall for dinner, and Jay get, or one of his people gets up in front and says, thanks for coming to dinner. What we do around here is before we have dinner, we have a little devotion and pray. And then they preach the gospel and offer an invitation. And believe it or not, people are coming to Jesus. One Friday night, Jay called me. He was so excited. I could sense over the line, uh, over, the, over the phone, I could sense his excitement. He said, Dad, you will never guess what happened. And this drug dealer, big-time drug dealer in Pickway County, in fact, a guy that the chief police in Circleville told me later, he said, your boy did more to take drugs off the street than me and my deputies have done in a year. And, but be that as it may, Jay was so excited. He said, this dude accepted Jesus. I said, that's so exciting. And he talked about it. He said, I know it was real. And, you know, he gave all the details of this, this guy's conversion. And then he said, but here's the problem, Dad. I sat down with him afterwards, and I'm, I'm trying to help him get started. And I said, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get a Bible and start reading a little bit every day. And he said, I, I think maybe it'd be good if you'd start in John. You know the spiel. You've either heard it or given it. It's the way, you know, it's the way we have been discipling folks. Get them started in the Word and trying to tell this guy about prayer and everything. And he, anyway, after his five-minute little mini-lecture that he learned in Bible college and so on, Jay said, so do you have any questions? And this kid said, uh, yeah, one, I'm going to do what you said, preacher, because I, 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 I know this Jesus thing's real now. I'm, I'm going to do it, but I got one. What's a Bible? Uh, serious as a heart attack. He had no clue what Jay was talking about from that moment forward. His worldview did not give him any categories for this book that we call the Bible. What is a Bible? We are not talking about the jungles of dark, darkest Africa. We're not talking about the lost tribes of the Upper Peninsula. <laughs> we, we are not talking about inner city Detroit or Chicago. We're talking about small-town America. We're talking about the burbs. We're talking about the place where you live, where I live. What's a Bible? So, you know, Jay, Jay says to me, you know what, Dad? When you only got a few minutes left and the guy's ready to go and it's important, that's not an easy question to answer. And I think at first, what's the matter with this boy? I should have taught him better. And then since then, I've been thinking about it a little bit. What's a Bible? I tell you what, let me show you what I mean. 30 seconds, 30 seconds, that's all you got. Turn to the person beside you, and in 30 seconds or less, you tell each other your answer to that question. What's a Bible? Go. <laughs> all right, now my follow-up question is, who's God, what's truth, and what does it mean inspired? If a, if a kid's living in a world where he doesn't know what a Bible is, all your churchy words are not going to answer his question. Are you, under, are you with me? So I, I, I got serious about this question. What's a Bible? And I came to this conclusion that for 50 plus years, the church has been debating that question. Let me give you two illustrations that are on extreme, opposite ends of a spectrum, and then suggest to you that the correct answer is someplace between those two extremes. You've got to find your spot. On one extreme is this illustration. I read a lot, uh, a couple of books a week, and trust me, it's not all about discipleship. Uh, I love novels, and so I'm reading. I, it's how I stay in touch with the, with the popular culture, uh, even though some of it's probably not excusable. I just like to. I got into a series of novels, um, uh, westerns. Those of you who, who used to read, or maybe still do, the Louis L'Amour stuff, that never really tripped my trigger. I just never got into that trip my trigger. I didn't even mean that. But anyway, I never even got, 
I just never got into that. But this guy, Robert Thomas, if you're into Louis L'Amour, you need to read Robert Thomas. You can get it on your Kindle. And it's a whole series. I think we're up to 72 novels now on Jess Williams, the bounty hunter. And Jess Williams is a good guy bounty hunter who goes from place to place shooting only the, ba- the worst of the worst and doing what the law is not getting done and all that stuff. Now, this is not Sunday school material. I understand that, okay? This, uh, most of it takes place either in the saloon or upstairs in the saloon. So, you know, a lot of killing, a lot of... It's, it's, it's not on the recommended list from Bayshore Camp. But I'm just, I'm just telling you, I, I have read those and found... I can turn my brain off and listen. And uh, most of those settings and illustrations, I have just kind of blot off. It's just how the book is. But there was a story in one of the novels. Jess came to a particular town, and two other strangers had just come into town. One was a preacher from back east, and he had a wooden box that was filled with Bibles. And the preacher is trying to give away the Bible. He's trying to sell the book by giving it away to people in town so that he can build a church. And so he's standing on the boardwalk on the dirt street and he's holding up the Bible and extolling the virtues of the Bible and trying to get people to come get their free copy. But there's a gunslinger just come to town. And he thinks it'd be funny, so he stands out in the middle of the street and listens to the preacher for a little bit, and then he takes out his six-gun and shoots a hole in the Bible. And it falls out of his hand into the mud of the street. And I had read all the saloon illustrations and all the upstairs of the saloon illustrations, and I, that one gave me pause. And I'm thinking, I need, to, I need to write Thomas and tell him that wasn't necessary. That book's more important than that to me. But, but yet, here's, here's what I concluded. The answer of a lot of folks in our culture today is a Bible is, is something to shoot holes in. It's been happening since the 1940s among uh, liberal classical theologians. Well, I'll take this. That makes sense. But this over here, I mean, that is way out miraculous stuff. Now, I'll cut that. In fact, one of those those classical theologians physically cut out the stuff that he didn't believe in, in search of the historical Jesus. Shooting big holes in it. That's really what he was doing. And he's, he's not alone. We've been doing that in the church. This makes sense to me, but this over here, I don't. I picked this, I'll take that, but this over. And so we, we have seen or experienced or lived picking and choosing of what we're going to. Let me just say as clearly as I know how, whatever your definition of the Bible is, it should include some phrase like this. The Bible is true in all that it affirms. And the debate that is rampant in the church, all of the debates begin to go away. You say, well, one gospel says it this way, another gospel says it that way. Look, if they don't match up, then there's something wrong with the way I'm interpreting and reading it. If I start with this foundational view that the book is true. I'll come back. I want to say more about that. But let me, let me go to the other end of the spectrum. I was a seminary student in the late 1970s at Asbury Theological Seminary. And Ralph Lewis was my homiletics professor. He was from Michigan. Anybody know Ralph or know of him? Uh, University of Michigan degree in rhetoric uh, who, that, who applied that degree in rhetoric uh, to homiletics, and he was, uh, I think, I think a Nazarene background, and ended up a United Methodist. He, he was a, f- a, a gentle soul. I love that old man. Uh, he really, he really influenced me. I mean, wh- a lot of what I'm doing in terms of teaching public speaking, probably came because Ralph was such a gifted homiletics professor. I just love that stuff. Ralph would always, when he would hear a student sermon and critique it, he would always 
begin with, oh, that was so good at this point, this point. He, he, had, he was brilliant at finding something good to say about the lousiest sermon. And then he would say, you know, you might want to take a look at improving here, 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 and here. And he would always end up with saying, but really, that was a great start and reaffirm the person again. It was, there was so much affirmation. So that one day when Ralph didn't behave that way, it stuck in my mind and I remember the issue. A young seminary student was preaching a sermon that he called as your God in a box. And he was saying to, to his audience, to his classmates, we have put God into a box and we expect God to behave the same way every time. And, and God is not going to be put in your box. God, God will be God. He's in charge. Great stuff. Really, really good, good stuff. His closing illustration, he took his Bible that he had just bought downstairs in the bookstore. And so he still had the box that it came in. And he slowly and carefully and dramatically brought the Bible down and put it in the box and clamped the lid on and said, is your God in a box? I thought Ralph was going to come totally unglued. He jumped up before the kid ever got the sermon done. And he said, no, 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 do not preach that illustration in the church. We got enough trouble in the church without you confusing people, making them believe that that book is our God. And Ralph commenced to teach in theology. He said, that's idolatry. That book points me to God. That book tells me about God. I love the book. The book is important, but don't you go out and try to teach people to worship the, the, God, the Bible. It's the wrong approach. Well, that got locked in there someplace. And many, many years later, when my son is challenging me on behalf of a new believer to answer the question, what's a Bible? I thought, for some people, it's just a book to shoot holes in. And for some people, it's a book to worship. But neither of those are very satisfying. Where's, where's the accurate answer in the midst of those two extremes? I did what I can do because of my understanding of Scripture. Since I believe the book is true and all that it affirms, I went to the book for my answer. If you don't agree with me that the book is true and all that it affirms, then you got a problem where you go find an answer. Your answer will be subjective. As subjective as shooting holes in it. It'll just be a matter where you put the holes. But since I believe the Bible is true and all that it affirms, I said, let me go see what the book says about itself. And I found 13 references. I won't bore you with all of them. But I was able to condense them and put them together and, and come up with the ones that I thought might be most important for us to look at. What does the Bible say in answer to the question, what's a Bible? The Bible says it's an inspired book. Somebody who, who's able to read well or, or willing to read, stand up and read uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 for me, will you? 2 Timothy 3.16. Who will read for us? Ellen, coming with the, with the mic. Many of you can do it. Please. Right over here is a man who's willing to read that passage for us. 2 Timothy 3.16. What does the Bible say in answer to the question, what's a Bible? You're fine. Thank you. Yes, sir. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Thank you. All Scripture is God-breathed. The old word, the one I still like, all Scripture is inspired by God. But what's that mean? Uh, but, but to, to, to the drug dealer who's known Jesus for 30 minutes, what does that mean? The church can't even decide what it means. We have been debating since the beginning of the church, I think, what is inspiration? And there are some folks who, who, who say, well, 
God got into people's heads. He got into this kid called Mark, and he put Mark in a trance, put him to sleep, and Mark's stylus penned just the words of God. We call it mechanical dictation theory. And I, for one, don't buy it. Why? Well, because I find enough uh, subtle differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and especially John to say there must be some personality here. What God did was inspire these folks in a different kind of way than, than just putting them in a trance and taking over their head. You, some of you have been inspired. You right-brain people know about inspiration. You know, a particular song just inspires us. Or some of you who are artists, you know about inspiration. It's beyond yourself. It's, God just poked my heart. And I think that's more, more likely. So God spoke to you, huh? Yeah. Let me show you this. If you buy that kind of definition, then your understanding of Scripture puts you crossways of the culture right now. Let me foray into the world of politics just for a minute, not to make a political statement because the illustration is so good. Don't really care what you think about the Vice President of the United States. I've known him as governor. I've met him. I've visited with him. And I now see his actions as, as vice president. And so we may have a little different perspective, but that's okay. Some time ago, Mike was, on, uh, uh, was in an interview with a reporter. And the reporter asked, was asking about situations in his own life. And Mike made this statement. He said, well, God spoke to me about, and I don't remember what the about even was. Know this, it was not policy. Uh, it was not, you know, we're, we're going a different direction in the administration because God's, it wasn't policy stuff that, that the culture would have a right to be concerned about uh, in a free America. It was a personal thing. God spoke to me. And the reporter said, God speaks to you? And Mike said, yeah. He does from time to time. I, I hear his voice. The kind of stuff that was preached so well last night in terms of hearing the voice of God. The next morning, the next morning, a reporter said, and I can't quote the whole thing, but it's close enough, I, I'm not done damage. She said, Christians since the beginning have understood that we talk to God. That's called prayer. But if God talks to you, that's mental illness. So listen, church. If you believe the book about the book, if your answer to the question, what is a Bible, includes something about inspiration, then you, according to a 21st century America, are mentally ill. That's what we're up against. The people you're trying to disciple are people who believe for all intents and purposes that you've gone way over the line into mental illness. Second, I found when I looked in the book to see what the book said about the book that Psalm 119.105, who will read for us? Please. Oh, she's going to quote it. That's even better. Bring, bring her a microphone. Thank you. Wow. It's amazing. A disciple maker. What does it say? Your word is a light, un your word is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my... <laughs> You're doing fine. Go ahead. I am put you on the spot in a bad way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an instruction manual. That's, that's what the book says about the book. It's an instruction manual how we live life. Anybody got a drawer someplace in your house like Nancy does? Not me. I don't do this. It's, it's one of those things that, uh, that we're still trying to work out after 44 years. Anybody got a drawer filled with instruction manuals? Every manual, every manual that you ever got, that you ever got on every appliance that you've ever owned, okay? And the appliance, the appliance is gone, and it's been replaced three times, so you don't know which instruction manual it is in the drawer, and you can't, 
Oh, wait a minute. Would you take Nancy a microphone? She wants to. <laughs> but you get the idea. And most of us in 21st century America have no need of such a thing because I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I know how to run a refrigerator. Just turn it down a little bit. It'll cool better. It's all right. We don't need that new gasket that says in a book you've got to do it. Just turn it down. It'll be fine. Uh, lawnmower won't start because it needs a new spark plug. I don't need another instruction manual. Just take the instruction manual go in the house. I don't care what it says. I'll get a spark plug and I'll make this thing. Right? I mean, that's the way. Maybe it's a gender thing, but I don't think so because i got a couple of guys here who got drawers like that. It's just a personality thing. But I'm telling you that in 21st century America, I don't want somebody telling me how to do it. Uh, our mantra is, I did it my way. <laughs> you just got one. D does she keep it or do you keep it? Both of us. So, see, it's not a gender thing. It's not a gender thing. Some of, some of us just up to speed with the culture and some of you are not. That's what the, Anyway, and now here comes a book telling us that it's the book, that it's an instruction manual. And we as disciple makers are going to go sell that to the culture. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you live life. Millennials are not interested in your instruction manual. The way they think, I've, I've come to understand, is does it work? Uh, pragmatics uh, is a millennial view of life. And so for you to say, here, here's the answer, they say, what's that? How come these old guys thousands of years ago know? You know how, how do you know that works? We're trying to sell something, men and women, as disciple makers, that the culture doesn't have categories for. That's what I'm saying. Third, 119, uh, 11, three quarter. Anybody know? Somebody look it up for us then. We need to know what the book says. If we're going to. Go ahead. Anybody? Whoever's got it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Good. So I might not sin against thee. In the old King James. So I might not sin against thee. Sin? What's that? We don't do the sin thing anymore. Most of our churches don't even do the sin thing anymore. They're mistakes. They're errors in judgment. And so we're trying to sell a guard against sin to a culture that says, sin, what, what, what are you talking about? What's sin? If you're going to be a disciple maker, and this book is going to be your foundation for making disciples, then somehow, somehow we've got to find ways to help people understand the difference between right and wrong in a culture that says there is no right and wrong. What's right for you, preacher? It's okay with you, but that, that didn't work for me. This thing of pragmatics. Some time ago, we had gotten in from, I don't remember what, how, what kind of trips or how many trips, but two or three churches back-to-back -back or a camp meeting in a couple of churches. So I don't remember. But I still balance my checkbook. I know that's old-fashioned, too, but I still check, I check it out online, but I still... And so on Sunday afternoon, my daughter, who learned all this stuff growing up, but is very much a part of the culture, came in and said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm balancing my checkbook. She said, it's Sunday. And I said, yeah, I know, but I've been gone for three weeks. She said, let me and, your, and my dad know how that works out for you, huh? Uh, pragmatics. She's saying... You taught me that what the book says to do is what works in life. And now you're not doing it. Do you see how you and I have to be consistent in our walk? Because the people we want to disciple are watching. And for them, the question is, what works? And you say, well, it, it, it works best if we don't work on Sunday, if we don't do business on Sunday, except i got to make this exception because I've been gone three weeks. Oh. 
we've got to be consistent in our walk. The Bible. What's a Bible? Well, it's a guard against sin. It's a way of doing life. Romans 10, 17. Who's ready to read? Romans 10, 17, please. Anybody? 10, 17? Yeah, 10, 17. Um, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message... And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Thank you. What's the Bible? Uh, it's a, it's an, a source of faith. It's an increase to our faith. Uh, for, for, for this uh, Christian 30 minutes drug dealer, it's the way he's going to grow. We've got to get it in his head someplace. But one of the ways that we get it in his head uh, is by living it ourselves. Faith, listen to the word, faith comes by hearing. Uh, I had been reading that for 60 years when one of the guys that I was working with in an attempt to disciple said, you just read it to yourself? Yeah. Well, it says it comes by hearing. Why don't you read it out loud so you can hear it? I said, "Uh, I don't know. But I've discovered, man, he was on to something. Read the word out loud. Find, find a place in your, in your quiet spot where you won't bother anybody and, and read the word out loud. I, I, haven't, I haven't completely changed. I can't do that 100% of the time. But faith comes by hearing the word. Or, or get a disc that's got the word on it and play it in your car as you're going about your busy schedule. Hear the word. Get it into your head because it will increase your faith. You say, I don't have time. I'm too busy. Uh, John Wesley was pretty busy. And he said that the busier I am, the more important it is for me to get up early enough to read and to pray. I submit to you there has never been a generation of disciple makers anywhere who have more need for the word of God than the folks that are standing in front of me. We need more time in the Word, not less, because every place we go and everything we do, there are those who would destroy our faith and who would draw us, drag us down uh, and who would offer us alternatives. Faith comes by hearing. We need to saturate ourselves with the Word. Is that making sense to anybody but me? Fifth, John 17, 17. Somebody over here. Thanks. Who's got it? John 17, 17. Wake one of them up. Somebody, somebody, somebody. Your word is truth. Uh, You again? Awana. (laughs) Your word is truth. Yeah. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the culture is saying, huh? Truth? Ain't no such thing. What's true for you is different for me. Because I've got a different set of experiences than you got. What's true for you might be okay for you, but don't try to impose it on me. The, the fancy philosophical term is relativism. We live in a culture that is beset with relativism. Let me give you the best example I've ever seen. I was teaching in a classroom, not Indiana Western University, thank God. But I was teaching in a classroom, and I was, I was making the point, or trying to make the point, that, that we are teaching one another that we're living a lie when we believe that perception is reality. Perception is reality. That's what our culture says. And so I, I put in front of my students a perception drawing, one of those drawings where you got two lines, line A and line B, except on line A there are arrows going this way at the end, and it makes line A look a lot longer than line B. You've seen them. You know what I'm talking about? And so I said to my students, perception says line A is the longest. But it really isn't. They're both exactly the same length. And there was a young lady in the front of that hall whose hand shot, I had seen her coming in, and I knew we were going to have trouble. I could just tell by looking at her. You know, her, her, she reminded me of one of my sisters-in-law, but don't tell Nancy. Anyway, her hand shot up. And I tried to ignore her. But it didn't work. Everybody in the place knew that she 
had a question or wanted to take me on. And so I finally said, I called on her. And she said, how do you know they're the same length? I said, I measured them. With what? A ruler. (laughs) What did it measure in? And I thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. She's only going to go to the difference between the metric system and the English system. So I thought I'll head her off at the pass. I'll get one step ahead of her. And I stretched the truth just a little bit. I said, on one side it measured in inches. On the other side it measured in millimeters. Both lines are exactly the same length. Here was her response. She threw up her hands in triumph, looked around the lecture hall at all of her colleagues and said, there you go. Who says inches are real, huh? Who says inches are real? Uh, We call it consensual validation. Linear measurement has been validated by consensus for thousands and thousands of years. It's a way that we make sense out of the world. It's a way that that we understand reality. There is no reality in her world. There's no truth. I said, so which line is longer? She said, A. I said, how do you know? Perception is reality. And here we are now peddling a book that says, no, there's truth, an absolute truth. We cannot use the same old tired approaches, beloved. Uh, We have to be very, very careful that we don't fall prey to that kind of thinking, I understand that. But we cannot declare any longer. We cannot teach and preach deductively, thus saith the Lord, and then proclaim the word. It's not working. It's not working. We're, we're trying to disciple a generation of people that are saying, uh, doesn't work. Where'd you get that idea? And I, th- I think it gets back to yesterday. We have to listen until we can come to the point where we say, so how's your way working for you? How's that way working for you? Uh, living your lifestyle. How's that working? You say, well, for some of them it might be working okay. Then it may not be the moment at which we're going to be able to bring that, pe- that person to discipleship, but there are plenty of them out there who are saying, you know what, my way's not working. I'm ready to try something different. And that's the moment at which you and I need to be available, present, listening, and say, let me show you another way. Let me tell you what I have learned. They want to know what works, not what you are proclaiming. Does that distinction make any sense? It's a book of truth in a culture that says there is no such thing as truth. And finally, it's an eternal book. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word remains forever. The world has changed rapidly. I'm 66 years old. I can still remember when you picked up the phone and had to listen carefully to make sure that there wasn't somebody else on the party line before you call. (laughs) I can still remember when only the very wealthy uh, occasionally got in an airplane and flew someplace. Now I know people who commute to work that way. I can still remember when I had to struggle to make my book budget at Asbury Seminary. And now I brought a Kindle with four or five hundred volumes in it. My granddaughter, Elsie, age 10, Elsie, age 10, is an avid reader. And she was saying to me the other day, Pap, can you help me get some books on my Kindle before I go back to Uganda? And her dream is that she's going to take all that she will need to read for the next three or four years. And it's a lot in Elsie's case. But she said, I could put them all 
under my arm and walk on the airplane and start reading. So cool. I want my grandkids to read. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful world we live in. Technology has changed a great deal. But there is eternal truth. There is truth that lasts forever. There is truth that changes lives. And one of the struggles for most of us in, in this class is trying to sort out the difference between culture and that truth. I, I don't have all those answers. One of the advantages I have is working with college people that have helped to keep me young. One of the advantages that some of you have is having little people, young people in your house that help keep you young. But one of the challenges all of us have is to stand firm on those principles and places where there's truth. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word abides. My dad is 89 years old, and dad has begun to sort out some stuff and give it away. Uh, pictures, documents. He's, he, he's been a huge genealogist in his retirement, so he's got a whole room full of junk. But most of it in his mind is not junk, and some of it, some of it in my mind is not. And the other day he gave me a snapshot uh, made in 1952. And he said, here, hang on to this, your four gen fourth generation picture. And it was my dad holding me, about three months old, and on either side, my grandfather, Marvin, that I knew very well, and then his father, W.J., William Joseph, W.J. now. And I said, who's that guy? That's W.J. I said, ah, I know something about W.J. because a few weeks ago you gave me a Bible that was W.J.'s. Yeah, I did. It's a little, you Gideons, I talked to some the other day, it's a little Gideon Testament. And in the inside fly, W.J. wrote a date and his name. And I said to my dad, when was W.J. born? Gave me a date. Wasn't his birthday. I said, when was he married? Gave me a date. Wasn't his birthday. I said, what's his date? I don't know. Must be the date he got the Bible. Well, what's that about? I don't know. Did you ever ask him? No. So I think I know. I know what I want to believe. Uh, I think that a, that a disciple maker came to W.J., I said, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how to live life. Let me show you the way. And W.J. said, yeah, let's do that. And he wrote down the date and signed it. Because it was a, a monumental milestone day in his life. That's what I want to believe. My dad said, you just made that up. I said, yeah, I guess so. But you know what? I'm going to ask him someday if I'm right. And someday I'm going to sit down with Debbie J. And we're going to look at that copy or at least remember that copy together and talk about what's true and what lasts. And I have a feeling because culture has changed a lot since 1952. I have a feeling that W.J. might be blown away by some of the things that I have done and believed. But there's one thing about which we will agree. And that is the reality of Jesus Christ. And what he can do in our life. What he's done in my life what he's done in your life and what he'll do in the lives of those people on your top ten list. It's true. 
and it's eternal. It will not change. We have been looking over the course of this week at what it means to be a disciple maker. We went back, we went uh, on Monday, back to a hillside in Galilee where Jesus called 11 and said, go make disciples. And we established that what he was talking about was only in part making converts, making disciples one step in the process. But you and I, who perhaps are not gifted in evangelism, have said, well, I can't do this disciple-making thing. And I hope you've, account, uh, you've, you've understood that, yes, you can. You must. It was the last word that the Master gave us. Go make disciples. And I tried to emphasize for us that that go there doesn't mean send somebody else for 10 bucks a month. It means as you are going, as you're about your business, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go home, as you are going, make disciples. And what I've tried to do is to suggest to you just four ways that you can start that process. The book is filled with other possibilities. But on Tuesday, I said, as you go, pray. And I, I gave you some techniques, but you hopefully developing your own. Pray for the people on your disciple list. I said to you on Wednesday, as you go, serve. We live in a narcissistic culture that only will serve itself. You will get a hearing when you become a servant of others. As you go, I said yesterday, listen. You do not have to be the disciple maker's got all the answers. In fact, my philosophy and even greater philosophy among the young people on your list. If somebody knows everything, they're probably lying to you about something else. Listen. Those folks on your list, they, they know some things that, that we need to know. And as you listen to them, you gain an opportunity to share what you have learned. And then today, as you go, you be a learner so that you can teach. New faculty come to me from time to time because I've been around long enough to have gray hair. And they say, Neff, I got assigned to teach this course, particular course. Have you ever taught it? No. Well, how are you going to help me? Can I teach it? Sure, you can teach it. How do I do it? Get a good textbook and teach the textbook until you learn enough to teach the course. That's what I'm saying to you. Go teach the textbook. And as you go teach the textbook, you will learn. And you will then be able to influence people in new and better ways. Let us take uh, 10 minutes. I want to close in a special way, and I want us to be done in a timely manner. Let's take 10 minutes if there are questions about any of those five or comments or observations. I have a really thin skin, but I'll even take your criticism. It's fine. What do you want to say? I don't. Well, I do, but I, I've learned to suck it up and take whatever you're saying. My father, all right. My father told me that um, there was a fellow was trying to evangelize somebody, and this guy says, "I don't believe a thing in that Bible." If you can show me one thing in that Bible, he says, "I'll believe it." But he says, "I don't believe a thing in it." Okay. With that, the man reached out, grabbed the guy's nose, twisted it back and forth and back and forth, and blood just come gushing out. Then he quoted the Old Testament: "The wrenching of the nose bringeth forth blood." <laughs> Wow. Not, not a technique that we're recommending. <laughs> yes, ma'am. First off, I want to thank you. I, I appreciate you being here because I enjoy your teaching very much. Thank you. Um, 
I have a question. Okay. It might be one that will hit you because my Sunday school teacher says, I'm great. Every time I go to Sunday school, I hit him with a question. Yeah. And I go, oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, my granddaughter, I'm not sure where she stands with God because when she was very, very young, her and I had a conversation, and I said, Desiree, do you want to accept Jesus? She says, yes. I said, well, ask Jesus, come in my heart. And she did. And she was like two years old at the time. Mm -hmm. But now that she is older, she is 13 years old, and because of the life situations that she's faced without her parents taking her to church or teaching the Bible or praying, that child says, how can a man that shed his blood over 2,000 years ago save me? What do I say to her? Thank you. I, if, as much as I'm understanding your question, I think what we have been talking about, it's not what you say to her, it's what you live before her. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, there's a problem. She's not in Michigan, she's out of state. So they don't see each other face to face. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, that's one of the beautiful things. Uh, uh, this is one we probably need to get some other input on. But, uh, that's one of the beautiful things about the day in which we live. You can interact with her wherever she lives, even though you don't see her on a face-to-face -face basis every day. Uh, I can interact with my grandkids in Uganda. I couldn't do that uh, a generation ago. So I can have influence. I influenced uh, my grandchildren. I've kind of fallen away on this, uh, but I did a monthly newsletter, told them about some of the things I remembered from my growing up days and inputted some scripture into that and had opportunity there. Uh, I input into their lives because I pray for them on a very regular basis, a very daily basis. I input into their lives because their mother did a marvelous job of raising their parents, and I know that they're getting the right answers when they come to those parents. So those are some of those are things you can't go back and do different. Some of those are things for some in the room uh, they can continue to do, which will change this young lady's life. Your question also points to the reality that we've been talking about, it seems to me, is that conversion and discipleship are not the same thing. And the church has typically, traditionally, and historically done an acceptable job, I think, of evangelism. Uh, even my church, even the United Methodist Church, as I travel from place to place, I find folks in all, all, the denominational groups I go who say, I used to be United Methodist, and then I got converted. Well, you know, what that's telling me is in the United Methodist Church, we have traditionally done a decent job of evangelism. We've done a lousy job of disciple-making. Uh, so, you know, it's a two-step process. Again, who, who has, who's got an answer for this lady who's right uh, back here is one? Let me take this gentleman one. right here while I'm Go closer. ahead. Give us two or three. When I volunteered for the mic, it wasn't to answer her question. It was to bring up a new point. So, <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Neff, thanks for those six points you made. Uh, what is the Bible? Could you bring them back up again? I can. You've got six there. You may as well make it seven. I kept waiting for this one because I think if you like it, you could add it. But anyway, there they are. And the, the last one would be it's a source of power, mm -hmm. source of power. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Yes, it does. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. So that would be a good seventh. That would be a, that round, that wonderful seven number of the Bible. Great. Uh, with regard which, to the which, dates. Let me, let me interrupt just for yes. a minute, which is another answer to the lady's question back here, and that is, what we cannot physically do, and I tried to emphasize this on, on Monday, Tuesday, what we cannot physically do, the Spirit does do on our behalf. And part of this disciple-making process is in conjunction with the work of the Spirit. Go ahead. With regard to your great-grandfather's date and his testament, uh, I've seen a lot of testaments, and generally speaking, the date in the front of the book is the date received. 
the date in the back with a signature is the date to receive Christ as Savior. How about that? And so I think you said it was in the front of the book. I think so, but I'm going to go uh, home and look at that it. That date normally doesn't have a signature. It, it, it's just the, who got the book on that date. Yeah. But the one in the back, if, if they still had them back then, I'm, I'm almost sure they do, is a decision page which says uh, receive Christ on this date, and yeah. then there's a signature. I Always haven't looked at it carefully enough to know there's not that decision page. It, okay. it's, it's in the fly. Okay, then the signature is required by Gideons because it, it, it's what we do in our world. When you sign something, you, con you, you affirm it and you agree to it. Yeah. So you or, or you commit to it, Good. like a signature on a mortgage. Yeah. So you sign that you receive Christ and put it in the Bible. And so it, it, it could perhaps be that in the front of the book if there's no decision page in the back. Thank you. You give W.J. and me hope. Right beside him, he's got a comment. In answer to her question, I think a lot of us are, are in that same place. And um, we want to see our grandchildren living for the Lord. One of the things I do is my grandchildren, on the, d on the day that they were saved, that they asked Jesus into their heart, I send them a card every year reminding them. Wow. Reminding Wonderful. Isn't that great? Reminding That's worth the price of admission. So much in the Bible. Remind, remind, remember. That is so cool. And um, and I remind them of how God has worked in their lives in the past. Right. And I tell them because you might give them a gift for their birthday, but for their spiritual birthday, I say, no gift, no money, because Christ is your reward every day of your life. That is so cool. Mark that down. Whoever in your household is responsible for the card. In uh, the front of my Bible, I um, had ripped out a page from the Bible that my dad gave me when I was 13 years old, and I just keep retaping it into whatever current Bible I'm using. And he says to Ellen, our daughter, God will speak to you if you read his word. Yeah. And then he wrote a little how much he loves me thing. And uh, I just, I'm reminded, and he wrote that in October of 1977, and it's just a reminder to me constantly. So what she said and what, you know, some of those things, I'm just standing here, a product of a dad who reminded me when I was 13, and now, later, it's still speaking to me. And another, another ray affirmation of a brilliant sermon last night, uh, how do we know God's voice? You know it when you read the Word, yeah. Mark 16, 15 says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. Yeah. The proof in it is when we, we have the authority, when I lay hands on and people get healed, my kids see that it's real. When I have a need and God has put money in a cupboard with no money for groceries, yes. when God puts gas in a tank, when God delivers my neighbor alcoholic from that, when God delivers my other little neighbor and, and winning souls because yeah. I have a rebellious son with mental problems and drug problems and he's tried to rip up my faith and told me how bad I was I said I just said well if I'm such a bad person and yes I'm fail but why does God answer my prayers isn't yeah. the proof the Bible says even with false teachers thank you'll know them by their fruits all you do is walk around blessed and got the joy thank you wonderful uh, let me hear one more, and, and then I want to close. Well, since Alan got back here, I thought I might as well say what I was going to say yesterday. I came up to you and mentioned, that, and you agreed with me, that uh, on your topic of listening, Jesus listened. And you can look through the Gospels and find uh, an infinite number of places where Jesus responded and reacted to people because he listened. And you can, yeah. if you discern that that's why he did those things, you find out that he listened, and Good. it's important. Yeah. He, he listened. I tried to make the point that day that he listened with all of his senses. He even, right. listen, he even listened to a woman's touch who hadn't spoken yeah. a word to him, as far as we know. And I thought I'd leave a little silence just for emphasis. Thank you. I appreciate it. I want to ask you a question as we close. Are you willing to be a disciple maker? Jesus said, go make disciples. Are you willing to make adjustments in your life that will make you a disciple maker? 
I want us to be very, very careful that we don't all stand just because everyone else stood. If you're serious about this, if you've got that top 10 list and, and you're going to change your approach to dealing with those folks, then I would invite you to stand with me to be commissioned as a disciple maker. Be careful. Be careful. There are some life change things going on here. Don't, don't just stand up because everybody else did. Let me ask those of you who are standing, do you intend to be a disciple maker? Do you intend to fulfill the Great Commission? If so, will you say, I do? And as you go, will you pray? Will you serve? Will you listen? And will you be a man or woman of the book? If so, will you say, I will? Then let me pray for you. I'm going to pray a personal prayer. It's my prayer for the moment. I'm going to pray in the first person. But I'm going to invite you in your mind to translate the I and make it your I. Lord, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Let me be exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O oh great God of the universe, God who's above every God, God of the highest heavens, God who's existed since before the beginning and will exist after the end, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine in the disciple-making business. And may this covenant that I have made on earth, may this covenant I've made on earth be ratified in heaven. And all the disciple-makers said, Amen and Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your time.